and welcome to episode 3 of the Talking Sira podcast. So today we have an exciting episode in that we speak about uh, the man, the greatest of mankind uh, to embrace this earth, Muhammad, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So in this episode we want to speak about the birth of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam but also speak about some of the great events that happened prior to his birth that were really symbolizing his arrival and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala signaling that something great was about to occur. Um, we'll also speak a bit about the birth of the Prophet and also some of the events that happened in his life at an early stage and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was really preparing the Messenger وسلم, for this great mission, this mission to guide mankind from darkness to light. So if you take your minds back to the previous episode, uh, we spoke about um, some of the world prior to Islam or the world prior to the Messenger and how actually it was in the depths of darkness, it was in the depths of shirk and idolatry and how uh, many, even the blessed land of Mecca had really been em- embraced shirk and they had idolatry everywhere, even in the Kaaba itself and on, in the corner of every household there was literally idols everywhere. So we spoke about this, we also spoke about how falsehood and injustice was really prevailing above truth and justice and how the world was in dire need of Islam. Um, and, and not just like the Arabs, but even the world at large were was in, you know, they were in warfare and the, a lot of the practices that were taking place was, you know, the message of Isa and the previous messages of truth had been lost, long lost. So the world was really in need of this new message and guidance of Islam. So today, again, we're going to speak about the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. But before we do that, there were some significant events that took place just before the birth of the Prophet ﷺ, really signifying his arrival. And I'll speak about speak about two, but there were some other events that occurred as well. But there were two major events, really. And the first event that we want to speak about is a rediscovering of Zamzam. And subhanAllah, the grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ, Abdul Muttalib, was actually involved in this event. So... Basically, um, before we spoke about it last week, that there was a tribe of Jurhum, right? Jurhum were the tribe that found Ismail salam and Hajar, and they they came and they saw Zamzam, the, the water flowing, right? And when we spoke, how the tribe of Khuzaa years years later had um, expelled Jurhum from this land, but when Jurhum left this land, one of the key things they did was bury Zamzam. They buried the well and erased all of its signs and marks so that if anyone was coming to this land now, would not know where Zamzam is. So imagine, now it's been 300 years and Zamzam has been long lost and Abdul Muttalib is in this, in this time now. So um, what happened one, on one occasion, um, Abdul Muttalib, he was sleeping in the Al-Hijr area of the Kaaba and he had a dream. And in this dream, he heard a voice. This voice said to him, dig Tabor. And Tabor comes from the word Tayyib, meaning pure. So he said, dig Tabor. And he asked, what is Tabor? And this voice didn't respond. It just, the dream came to an end. So Abdul Muttalib didn't really make much of it. And it carried on with his day. The next night, he had a very similar dream. But this time, the voice said to him, dig uh, Al-Barra. And again, he asked, and what is Al-Barra? And Barra comes from the word purity or goodness he asked what is barra and this voice again didn't respond so again uh, he didn't really make much of it and carried on with his day 
And then the third night, again, the uh, no, same voice said to him, and dig al-madnuna. Again, he asked, and what is al-madnuna? Again, the voice didn't respond. So these three dreams happened, and nothing he could really do with this, and he carried on with his day. Then the fourth night, very similar dream, but this time the voice said to him, dig zamzam. And again, he asked, and what is zamzam? And this time the voice responded, zamzam. It will never fail to dry up and it will water the grand pilgrim. It lies between the dung and the blood, near the nest of the crow with the white leg and the ant's nest. So subhanAllah, there's some, at least there was a response this time. But again, it was very codified, very very cryptic. And um, the Abdul Muttalib, he couldn't really make out what this meant. So he didn't really do anything. He carried on with his day. But in the day after, he essentially went to do tawaf. So he's doing tawaf around the Kaaba. And while he's going around the Kaaba, he noticed some blood and dung. And the blood was from a camel that had been slaughtered and, and dung there as well. So he noticed this and he didn't really make much of it, carried on. And then he saw a crow with a white leg and a colony of ants. And when he saw this, he realized that this is what the voice was telling me. And this is the uh, this is where I need to dig. This is where Zamzam is. Dig Zamzam. So he called his uh, son Al Harith, and both of them they ba- basically they started to dig. They de- started digging in this land. And imagine, Subhanallah, he's they're right next to the Kaaba. So when the people saw him dig and saw his son dig, they were concerned and they were shouting that, "What are you doing? Why are you digging right here when we're doing Tawaf and we're in the blessed land of the Kaaba? Why are you digging here?" And they didn't respond. Abdul Muttalib and Harith, they carried on. Continually digging, digging, not responding to the, the voices of the people. So eventually, as they were digging, uh, Abdul Muttalib, he came to the rim of the Zamzam. He found Zamzam and he exclaimed and shouted that he had found uh, this well. And the people gathered around and they they even were like in cel- celeb- celebrating essentially that they found the well of their forefather. But what they were trying to say is that this well, it belongs to all of us. You know, this was the well of our uh, forefather Ismail alayhi salam. This belongs to all of us. So Abdul Muttalib disagreed. He said, no, I was shown the dream. Uh, I started to dig. You guys told me not to dig. And I'm the one that discovered it. So this well belongs to me. So when this happened, a dispute came, uh, you know, d- d- there was a dispute. Uh, the people were saying it belongs to everyone. And Abdul Muttalib saying, no, it only belongs to me. So um, before they came to, they were going to have a fight. Uh, and even war was going to break loose. But um, someone suggested that why don't we go to the witch of Banu Sa'd. Basically, they used to go to uh, this witch or this sorcerer who was in contact with the jinn um, and ask her for advice or to kind of be a mediator between any dispute. So they they decided let's go to her and let her decide what where who 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 the well belongs to. So anyway, they all agreed. So let's let's you know let's go next day. Let's go towards Banu Sa'd, which is a bit further further out. But Subhanallah, ironically, whilst they were travelling to Banu Sa'd, they ran out of water. They ran out of water, and imagine this isn't like here with today, where you run out of water and you can get by. They're in the middle of the desert, so water is an essential need of survival. So they got to such an extent that they were on the brink of death. And subhanAllah, they went to the extent that they even dug their own graves. So each of them said, look, we're going to die. Why don't each of us dig our own graves, lie in it, 
and that will mean that only one body will be exposed. Meaning, when one person dies, they will cover it up and eventually carry on doing this, and only one body would be left exposed. But they they did this, and they they were lying in their graves essentially. Subhanallah. Um, and Abdul Muttalib he thought to himself that this isn't right. Why you know why am I lying in my grave? Why are we you know brave men, leaders of the Quraysh, lying in our graves waiting for death? So he got up and he said, look, I'm going to look for water. And he went about and he looked for some water. So subhanAllah, when Abdul Muttalib went to look find water, he, he actually found it. He found more water. And when this occurred, the people re- recognized that this is from Allah. Allah is uh, basically signifying that Abdul Muttalib, he found the water and he has the rightful ownership of Zamzam as well. So they gave up their claim and they all returned back to Mecca. So the reason I think this is a significant event that really highlights the coming of the Prophet ﷺ is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after 300 years or so when shirk had spread all around these lands, these blessed lands had given them this blessing again of Zamzam and this was signifying that Allah has given something pure to them, the Zamzam and he's about to give them something purer which is the arrival of Muhammad ﷺ soon to be the messenger to the whole of mankind. So this was one of the significant events that involved Abdul Muttalib, his, his grandfather. So another significant event that took place uh, actually in the, la- in, the, in, the, in the year that the Prophet ﷺ was born uh, was the event of the elephant. And this is the year, Am uh, al the year of the elephant is the year that the Prophet ﷺ was actually born. Um, and the event of the elephant was essentially um, to relate the story is that a king of Yemen, his name was Abraha. He had converted to Christianity and a lot of Yemen had also con- converted to Christianity. And what his objective was that all the people of Arabia, they convert to Christianity as well. So he wanted everyone to kind of flock towards Yemen. And he decided to build a grand cathedral to rival the Kaaba. Because he recognized that the Kaaba was that central religious authority and he wanted to rival that and build a structure that would be- become bigger than the Kaaba so that everyone would, would come towards him. And he built this, he, he basically got marble and gold and all these raw materials to Yemen and he built this grand cathedral, really, really unique. And subhanAllah, even after all his efforts, the people still viewed the Kaaba and Mecca as the central religious authority. And this angered Abraha because he wanted people to come to him. So the, the real trigger point really was when one of the Arabs, he... Basically, he went into Al-Kulais, this, this cathedral, and he defecated, and he defecated and spread it all over the walls. SubhanAllah, Abraha was angered. Like, this was the trigger point. He realized that the only way to get people to come to Al-Kulais and embrace Christianity is if I destroy the Kaaba itself. So what he did, he mobilized a huge army. He mobilized this army and to, to march forth and destroy the Kaaba. And in his army, this is where the significant bit is that in his army he had uh, an elephant to to help him, and this was a key weapon. This elephant's name name was Murad, and this elephant was basically he's going to be used to 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 basically destroy the Kaaba. So anyway, Abrahi he marched forth and he went towards from Yemen, marching towards uh, Mecca. So they came they came across resistance from some Arab tribes, and these Arab tribes basically wanted to stop. Abraha from destroying the Kaaba. But they came across a tribe and this tribe was Banu Thaqif. And subhanAllah, this, this tribe has played a major role in Islamic history, in the early history of Islam. And they essentially 
decided to help Abraha and they sent with him an advisor called Abu Raghal. And this, this man, he was a he was a hypocrite really. He was, he, was, he was an enemy to Islam and enemy to the Arabs. And he um, he decided to help guide Abraha towards Mecca. And he didn't really help much, but it symbolizes something that even then they, they had these hypocrites within within their ranks. And uh, even afterwards when Abu Raghal uh, died, they actually they, they, they created a, a statue of him in this land and they would stone him because of this treachery and this hip, hypocrisy of this man and how he, he symbolized this uh, greater enemy because not only was he, you know, he was from them, but he has this hypocrisy and it's a lesson that we can take that even today in Islam we have, have these people who tell us that they're from us they claim to be from the Muslims, but they're the hypocrites. They're the ones that are supporting the enemies. And they, behind our backs, are essentially being treacherous. And, and, and we can really relate about this back to the story of Abu Raghal. Anyway, so um, the, the, the army of Abraha marched forth uh, with the elephant. And they came towards uh, the, the, the surrounding areas of um, Mecca and they found... 200 camels and they stole it basically these camels were taken and these camels actually belonged to Abdul Muttalib so they, they came to towards the thing and they took these camels and when this happened uh, Abdul Muttalib realized that these are his camels so he decided to arrange a meeting with Abraha to to get these camels back that he's you know the 200 camels they belong to me so why is Abraha stealing these so he he organized a, a, a meeting with him so Abraha really um you know, they had a meeting. He 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 welcomed Abdul Muttalib into his, you can call it. I wouldn't want to call it a palace, but basically into where his, he was staying, and he was on his throne. And when Abdul Muttalib walked in, Abraha straight away um, gave saw this presence of Abdul Muttalib. He he carried this presence of being a leader, and he commanded respect. So Abraha uh, respected him straight away, and he came down from his throne, and they both sat on the the ground and and decided to discuss what. You know whatever Abdul Muttalib had on his mind, so Abdul Muttalib said to Abraha that through the interpreter that said that you have taken two hundred of my camels, give them back to me. So Abraha Subhanallah was shocked because he, from his perspective, he was saying that look, I've come here to destroy your honor, destroy the honor of your fathers, that to destroy your livelihood, the Kaaba, and here you, you're asking me about camels, all that respect that I had for you when you walked in, I've lost it all. Take your camels, you can have them. So subhanAllah, Abdul Muttalib responded in such an eloquent, amazing way. What he said is that these 200 camels, I am the master of these camels, meaning they belong to me and I am responsible for these camels. But the Kaaba, the house of Allah, belongs to Allah and Allah will protect his Kaaba, his, protect his house. So he went away, he told the people, go out to the mountains and don't fight back, let them do what they wish, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will protect his house. So they all left and before they left, um, Abdul Muttalib was the last person and he basically made dua to Allah, clinging onto the cloth of the Kaaba, asking Allah to protect his house. So anyway, um, Abraha and his army with the elephant were marched forth. And as they were marching forth towards the Kaaba, the elephant stopped. He didn't want to move any forward, forward anymore. And he would go in any other direction. So if you faced him another direction, the elephant would move forward. But whenever they faced the elephant towards the Kaaba, he would stop and not move forward. And they would poke him. They even used to, they made him bleed, made the elephant bleed. But the elephant had none of it and he didn't move forward. Basically, Allah was stopping the elephant. Allah, this is Allah's slave. So Allah was stopping the elephant from moving forward and they continued without the elephant. So this army of Abraha, they moved forward and 
went to uh, basically attack the Kaaba and destroy it and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent forth his soldiers and his soldiers were the Ababil these were birds these birds they, they were sent and they had missiles carrying missiles and they dropped these missiles upon the people of the army Abraha's army and destroyed every single one of them as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala explains and they, they became like straw like in, in fire it burnt, burnt, burnt like straw and subhanallah um, that essentially Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in Surah Al-Fil he, he narrates this where he says have you not considered, O Muhammad, how you, your Lord dealt with the companions of the elephant? Did he not make their plan into misguidance? And he sent against them birds in flocks, striking them with stones of hard clay. And he made them like eaten straw. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is asking us, narrate, this is what I did to the people who tried to destroy my house. This is how I deal with those people. And subhanAllah, this is one of the key lessons that we can take from this event. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, no matter how corrupt the people may have been, because these people were not on Islam. Muhammad wasn't a messenger at this point. He hadn't even been born. He was born in this year. But Allah is narrating to us that he would always protect his blessed house. And his breast, uh, you know, surroundings. For example, even Al-Aqsa. Al-Aqsa today is being occupied by uh, the enemies. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always protect it. Even though the Jews want to destroy uh, Al-Aqsa. The Kaaba today. That, in a way, you could argue that's being occupied by Al-Saud. These are treacherous people. These are people that um, have no concern for Islam and the Muslims. They claim to be the guardians of, of the Kaaba. The custodians of the Kaaba. Um, but but it's, in essence, they're, they're, you know, they're traitors. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always protect his surround his blessed land and his blessed uh, you know blessed structures such as Alexa and, and the Kaaba. And this is something that we can learn from this. And you know, these were some of the significant events that took place prior to the birth of the Prophet. And both actually, subhanAllah, both involved uh, Abdul Mutalib. Um, he, he was the grandfather of the Prophet, a, a, a great man and someone that was hugely respected. He was involved in both. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was really signifying to the world and to Arabs themselves that something great was about to occur, something greater than these events. Um, SubhanAllah. And this was the year that the Prophet was born, Amil Fil, the year of the elephant. Okay, so let's now move on to the birth of the Prophet. So, as I was saying, he was born in the year of the elephant, Amil Fil. And uh, I didn't really want to go into the discussion of when he was born, but um, most scholars, they agree that it was a Monday, uh, but there's a difference of opinion on the actual date. Um, so I'm not really going to go into that, but he was born in the year of the elephant and um, he was born to the parents of Abdullah and Amina. And subhanAllah, the Prophet never actually saw his father Abdullah. Um, his, when his mother Amina was pregnant, his father passed away uh, while he was traveling to Syria. So he never saw his father, but he was, you know, Amina was already pregnant and, and was bearing uh, the Messenger وسلم, in her womb. So one of the things that was narrated that when Muhammad was born, um, Amina, Amina saw a light come from her, uh, directed all the way to Asham in Syria. Signifying and symbolizing that the Prophet's message and the message of Islam will travel all across the world, even as far as Syria. 
So there's not much narration about the actual birth of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, but um, there are some things that happened in his early life that we can really touch upon and recognize how Allah subhanahu wa taala was preparing the Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam. One of the things we want to just really touch upon is his time with Halima Saadia. Halima Saadia was basically a um, woman that was from Banu Saad, and one of the things they would do for a livelihood was they would take the children when they are young age to the desert. And the reason for this is that the children would become stronger, they'll live in a more natural environment where there's no disease, no bacteria, and they'll become stronger children So for their life ahead. So uh, Halima Saadia came with all her women folk to the land of Mecca to take a child with them to back to the deserts and back to Banu Saad. And what happened is uh, most of the women, they rejected Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam because, and this is subhanAllah, you know, he wasn't a prophet then, they didn't know anything special about the, the baby at the point, uh, the, 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 when, he was a, when Muhammad Hassan was a baby. Um, but the reason they rejected him was because he was an orphan. And their thinking wasn't as legitimate thinking. They said that, you know, who would pay us? And, and even if they were to pay us, would we really make, gain much money from some uh, a child who is orphaned, has no father? So they, most of them, they rejected him and they took other children. But it came to the end of the day and Halima Saadiyah, she had no child to take. So she told her husband that, look, we came across Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and you know we have no choice but to take him because we're going to go empty-handed, and we don't we don't want to go from this land that we've come to empty-handed. Let's take him, and whatever benefit comes, it's from Allah. We'll, we'll take him anyway. So they took uh, Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, uh, went to Amina, and they, they took Muhammad sallallahu alaihi to Banu Saad, and Subhanallah, straight away they started to witness the blessings of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, even when he was a baby. And you know there were some the very various uh, blessings that occurred. Uh, one of the blessings was that um, during the night when they were there in Mecca, um, their camel Halima and her husband's camel, they wasn't really um, given any milk. But as soon as the Messenger of was brought into the the you know in their hands, um, they started to see that the camel was literally you know given as much milk as as required so that their child as well was was not hungry and even Muhammad you know all of them were were feeding you know were were okay because all of them were having this milk from the camel so straight away a blessing was being bestowed upon them for just having Muhammad in their grasp another one was that their donkey when they arrived into the land their donkey was the slowest it was really holding back the whole tribe and subhanallah on the way back their donkey became the fastest and the people were saying that, why is your donkey the fastest now? Is it a different donkey? But she said, no, you know, this is the blessing that's come from this child. And there were many more blessings that occurred. And Halima, she narrates and says that, and we started to recognize this. So when, the, when two years arrived and it was time for the Messenger of Sallallahu to be sent back, because all the blessings and the, the, the good that was coming from Muhammad Sallallahu both Halima and her husband, they didn't want to give up Muhammad Sallam. They wanted to keep him for longer. So they went to Amina and they basically gave excuse after excuse to hold on to Muhammad Sallam for longer. And um, Amina eventually, she didn't want to agree, but she eventually agreed. And they took Muhammad Sallam back towards the desert. But an event happened soon after that uh, scared them and, and frightened them. And that was when he was once, Muhammad Sallam was pray, playing with his foster brother. And while he was playing, his foster brother came rushing back to Halima and and his father her, his father and said that something happened to his brother from Quraysh meaning Muhammad and they went back and they, they asked what happened and Muhammad Sallam said that two men came and opened his abdomen and took out something and, and placed it back in meaning his heart they say and 
basically Halima got very frightened and re- really loved the Prophet ﷺ and didn't want anything to happen, especially when he was in her, you know, her control and responsibility. So she took Muhammad ﷺ back towards Amina and gave her back. Amina did kind of say, you know, why are you giving him back, even though you wanted him and you were really pushing me to let me let you know let let you keep him for longer. Um, but Amina, you know, eventually she told him what happened, and Amina said, "Look, don't worry. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is protecting him. He was the light. You know, my pregnancy was the lightest of all pregnancies, and also, you know, there were many signs showing that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala was protecting Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam." So one of the things that um, also we really worth highlighting in the early years of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was that the Messenger sallallahu was actually orphaned three times. The first one we spoke about, he was orphaned in the sense that he had no father. He never saw his father. So, he, you know, before even he was born, no father, only his mother. And his mother actually died when he was a young age of six. Amina passed away. So at six years old, he is given to Abdul Muttalib, his grandfather. And subhanAllah, by the time he was eight years old, Abdul Muttalib also passed away. So subhanAllah, from Abdullah, his father passing away before birth, to Amina at six years old, and then Abdul Muttalib at eight years old, three of them passed away and he was transferred over to um, Abdul Muttalib, um, Abdul, uh, sorry, Abu Talib, his uncle. So subhanAllah, he was orphaned three times. And we, sh- we should ask ourselves, why was he orphaned? Is there any hikmah from Allah why the Prophet ﷺ was orphaned? And m- possibly there is, you know, Allahu Alim, what, what the real reasons are, but there seems to be a hikmah in this. And there are three reasons that I can broadly say that the hikmah uh, in him being orphaned. And the first one is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Alam yatiman Did he not find you an orphan and give you shelter and care? And the first reason is that it built this reliance on Allah. Muhammad didn't have to rely on his parents. He had this, you know, it was instability that it meant that he can only rely on Allah. At a young age, imagine being orphaned three times. His reliance on Allah must have been much greater than any other child. Number two, experiencing that pain and hardship. Imagine as a child, six years old, eight years old, your your you know your guardians, your parents passing away. The the pain and the hardship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was really giving him. Making experiences at a young age, really showing, you know, giving him that experience and making him ready for the hardship that will come ahead. Because many hardships came ahead when he became the Prophet of Allah. Uh, and linked to that, really, number three is obtaining sabr, obtaining that perseverance when a calamity befalls him, when hardship befalls him, he is able to have that sabr. Because at a young age, he went through that hardship and calamity. And we even know when he was a Prophet, he, he, he also went through hardship of burying his own children, you know, whilst he was alive. Lots of hardship, making him ready for that hardship of this mission, that, that huge burden that he had to carry. And having that sabr, because nonetheless, no, despite all the hardships and uh, difficulty he goes through, he must continue. He must continue with that mission of spreading Islam. He must continue with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordered him to do. Subhanallah. So this can be some of the hikmah, many, many more reasons I'm sure, but some of the hikmah of why the Prophet ﷺ was orphaned uh, not one time, not two times, but three times at a young age. And the final thing I really want to touch upon before bringing it to a close, but I want to spend a bit more time on this, is one of the key occupations that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam or the, the occupation or the, the, the livelihood he had at a young age and that was being a shepherd. His profession was a shepherd. You know, he was a shepherd of sheep. And subhanAllah, 
the Prophet ﷺ was once with the companions and he said that Allah has not sent a Prophet that was not a shepherd of sheep. SubhanAllah, every single Prophet was Allah decided that his profession would be a shepherd of sheep, especially. So the companions asked him, and you? And the Prophet ﷺ said, yes, even I used to be a sheep and the people of Mecca would compensate me for this. So every single Prophet was a shepherd. Every single messenger prophet was a shepherd of sheep. So let's ask ourselves, why? Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose this occupation? What was significant about this occupation that, that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had chosen? And when I go through some of the reasons, I really want us to reflect on ourselves. Because one of the things we need to recognize is the Prophet is our example. You know, this is the person we follow. So the, the key lessons that the Prophet went through and, and, and the, the, the trial and the basically the experience that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given the Prophet many of it kind of relates back to us. And, you know, we should relate any of these responsibilities that the Prophet had to ourselves as well, to the capability that we have. Obviously, we're not going to be to that level, but as the Sahaba did, they followed the Prophet in everything, and we should do the same. So the first reason, and these are from, so there are many reasons, but we, I've taken this from uh, the sayings of Ibn al-Qayyum. He, he narrates some of the reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decided that the Anbiya, the Prophets, would be made shepherd of sheep. And the first reason, probably the most important reason, is responsibility. So being a shepherd means you need to be responsible for your flock. No matter how you know, difficult to manage that flock is, whether they stray somewhere else, you have to take responsibility. You cannot say back to the master that, oh, this sheep got lost because he went on his own way. You have to take responsibility. And that's what they got, you know, this, this is what they learned as being shepherds. And because they learned this at such a young age, the Anbiya and the Prophet ﷺ, it really made them ready for when they were going to be leaders of the Ummah, when they're going to be leaders of their people, that this was their flock now. They've had their practice with the sheep and this has given them that training, that, that education of how to manage an Ummah. So this was one of the key things that got him, got Muhammad ﷺ ready to be a leader to be that one that had to have that responsibility over his people, over his ummah. And the Prophet ﷺ, as I was saying, this extends to us. As the Prophet ﷺ said, every one of you is a shepherd and is responsible for his flock. The leader of the people is a guardian and is responsible for his subjects. A man is a guardian for his family and is responsible for them. A woman is a guardian of her husband's home and his children and is responsible for them. And the servant is a man of a man is a guardian of his property and is responsible for that. No doubt, every single one of you is a shepherd and is responsible for his flock. So this really highlights to us that we have to take this responsibility as well. And not only this, is that we should hold others to account to take on their responsibility. So when we see the leaders not taking on the responsibility to the leaders, of their people, sorry, we should question, are you really a leader? Are you fulfilling that responsibility that is on your shoulder? Or is someone else worthy of that position? Likewise, even ourselves in our homes, in every aspect of life, are we fulfilling our responsibility as being a man, as being a husband, as being a wife, as being a child, as being a slave of Allah? Another reason of why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had chosen the Anbiya to be shepherd of sheep is, again, obtaining sabr, obtaining that perseverance that, you know, when it comes to shepherding sheep, you have to wait. The shepherd has to wait for the sheep to do what they need to do to graze, and he can't rush them. 
He has to wait, have that perseverance, take him to the right area, take him back to the, you know, he has to carry out those actions with clear sabr and perseverance and get the job done. And not rush it, not not force it, literally just have that sabr and carry out and continually do those actions. And this is the role of every prophet. Every prophet has to have that sabr with his people. You know, take the example of Musa alayhi salam, who was actually a shepherd for the longest. He was a shepherd for 10 years. Did that not teach him to be have that sabr with who? The people who were the most challenging, and they were the Banu Israel. His people were arguably the most challenging of people. But Musa alayhi salam had to have that perseverance, had to have that sabr. Nuh alayhi salam, he gave da'wah for how many years? 950 years. Subhanallah. He tried every single method, day, night, for 950 years, trying to call his people and they still rejected. Did that not mean that he had to have that sabr and carry on? You know, not stopping. And that being a shepherd gave him that, that, response, that, that kind of sabr. And he attained it at a young age. And likewise, the Prophet ﷺ had to have that sabr with his own ummah. And, you know, this is one of the, another key reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may have chosen this occupation for the Anbiya. A third reason is the, the shepherd, what he learns is that he has to protect his flock. And this extends to protecting the ummah. So the shepherd needs to be aware of any danger that lies ahead, whether it be wolves, beasts, disease. He needs to have that foresight and protect his flock. And, you know, one of the other analogies you can take is that the shepherd is able to see in a distance that the sheep cannot see. The sheep are in their own little world and they're, they're kind of grazing. The shepherd can see from far and can protect uh, uh, and, and you know, make sure that it takes the actions to protect his flock. An incident occurred once during uh, in Medina where there was commotion. There's a loud noise. Sahaba got up recognizing something's going on and they rushed to this event and while they were going there they saw the Prophet walk back and he said don't worry go back to sleep nothing to worry about so the Prophet was there first before the Sahaba had even realized the Prophet was already there because he had that responsibility to protect his ummah protect his Sahaba protect his companions so this is one of the things that the Prophet all of the Prophets obtained by being a shepherd and one of the hadith, uh, uh, hadith from the Prophet ﷺ, he said, the analogy of me and you is like, I'm like somebody standing next to the fire and you are attracted to it and you are jumping in it while I am trying to grab you by your clothes and drag you out away from the fire. So this is like the analogy of what the Prophet ﷺ is doing. We're doing all these actions, these our speech, everything that, that's taking us to the fire. But the Prophet ﷺ has trying to guide us away, trying to pull us away through his sunnah, through his actions, through his speech. He has given us that guidance to, to keep away from Jahannam, the fire, towards and, and, and go towards paradise, Jannah. And the, the other thing is that they had foresight. They thought about the, the dangers of even the future. So the Prophet ﷺ, did he not warn us about the Jal? Did he not warn us about the Day of Judgment, the, the end of times? Even though it's not occurring in his life, it didn't happen in his life, but He's warning the ummah of these dangers ahead. And this is what it really means to be a shepherd of the ummah and a protection for the ummah. And there's many more reasons that, you know, why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose the Anbiya to be a shepherd. And that includes like, for example, the, the shepherd has to have that time away from the busy life and, and is able to contemplate on the creation of Allah. You know, they, they go out towards the deserts, to, towards nature, they can contemplate. And there must be a hikmah in that the Prophet and all the Anbiya, 
they had that time to reflect on the creation. They had that time to reflect on everything surrounding them before they were made prophets. And even that simple life that they led. Not, not saying that they couldn't live with some comforts, but actually that shepherd life, you can't take all your comforts with you. You can't take lots of food and water. And that really taught them how to live through a simple, hard life. Because in the future, many more hardships will arrive. And we will speak about it in the times of the Prophet ﷺ. He had to go through the boycott. He had to go through being stoned by people. He had to go through many, uh, you know, torture even. And seeing his people go through torture. He had to go through all of this. But the, being the shepherd allowed him to live that simple life so that when it occurred in future, he carried on. He continued having that perseverance, even though, even though he was going through that hardship, hunger and torture. So in conclusion to this session, inshallah, I pray that we have been able to touch upon some of these key events that took place prior to the Prophet's coming and birth, and also during his early life, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was really get, you know, getting the Prophet ready for this mission, this grand mission that he had. And as Muslims, as da'is, as da'wah carriers, we must also basically take on these lessons, recognize that you know, if we want to carry on the mission of the Prophet our beloved messenger, that we need to learn some of these lessons of how to live that hard, hard life if it ever were to occur. You know, it's easy for me to say here, living in this comfort, but actually many of the Muslims live this life today because they're being persecuted and tortured. And we also need to gain that sabr and persevere on the path despite all the hardships and all the attacks that are occurring by the enemies against Islam. We need to persevere and really recognize that this is going to happen. Allah has already said to us that if we are to gain Jannah, it's not going to be easy. There are going to be hardships and you won't gain Jannah just like that. So we need to recognize, roll up our sleeves and you know, graft for, for Islam as the Prophet and the Sahaba did after. And may Allah make us as though from those who take on this responsibility, obtain these lessons and learn from these lessons of the seerah uh, from this episode, inshallah. I pray that you have benefited and inshallah, please share this with others so that others can benefit as well. Um, and this, you know, bring it to a close now. I say this, 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 I say this,